Um, so uh, welcome everyone to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Um, it's your uh, friend Mark. Uh, it's my first time hosting, so uh, please be please be nice to me. <laughs> but um, I'm on with uh, two new guests and one returning guest. Uh, the first, our first new guest is um, Jay. Uh, say hello, Jay. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Cool. Hey, uh, and uh, Carrie. Say hi, Carrie. Hi, everyone. And uh, we have returning guest, Diana. Hi, guys. So um, I think a great thing that um, uh, our friend Oxford did uh, the last podcast um, that was about internalized racism, where we had a lot of new uh, friends of, of Plan A on, was to sort of ask them how, they, how you guys uh, sort of found Plan A and, and sort of what brought you here. So, uh, Jay, could you just you know, sort of give a little background on, on how you found Plan A? So I'll start a little bit from how I came into Asian activism through Facebook. Uh, I have very leftist policies or politics, and I found my way into Asian American, which was very broad. I'm an Indo-Canadian, and it had a lot of relevance to what I was thinking about, although it usually came from a very liberal framework. And then Mm -hmm. over the years, I learned about Plan A, but I actually learned about it having some unsavory characters and I should be distrustful of it. And so I decided, you know, it's good to know <laughs> I mean, we're a very, bit more about we're what very Plan scary, A is all yeah. about. And what I found out was like, no, it's some very socially conscious folks that care about, you know, left of center, if not more than left of center issues. And they discuss it with an Asian American framework. And that's something new. You don't really, you hear about the Asian framework, but not the Asian American framework. And I'm very much interested in that and how the Asian diaspora sees politics in their own framework and lens. And yeah. Very cool. We're glad to, to have found you and connected with you. Uh, and Carrie? Um, I was just like reading about the Celeste Ng controversy where she was oh, talking yes. about... Oh, yes. Okay. Um, she was basically addressing misogyny and how Asian men were coming at her for saying certain things. And I was reading her her piece on the cut and I found it like really unsatisfying for a few reasons. I was like, there's something missing here. There's a piece of the conversation that, you know, that's missing. And then Mm. I was just like scrolling on Medium and then it just popped up on my front page. Um, I think it was Oxford's piece on it. And I was like, yes, Yes. like this is the opinion that I'm looking for. Like this is the piece of it that it's missing. And I immediately really like that point of view because it's just like this part of the conversation that you don't read about often. And I really appreciated his insights. And so from there, came across a bunch of wonderful, insightful people. And Oh, thank you. <laughs> and now you're part of it. Now you're yes, part of it. Yes, wow. Life. So that's, that's <laughs> awesome. And of course, um, you know, Diana, um, you... Uh, you know, you told a little bit about how you found us um, last podcast, but did you have any more to add as well, or did we want to just get into it? Uh, I mean, I can say, you know, one of the first uh, articles that I read was George Chow's article about um, his experiences with mental health, and um, that was one of the things that really, really resonated with me as somebody who's, like, you know, been to therapy and, you know, done all of that. And uh, yeah, that's kind of why I was interested in this podcast anyway, to begin with. All right. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and we'll, we'll be circling back uh, to that article as well. Escape from Plan A. So um, this is the official start of the podcast, uh, Escape from Plan A podcast. And uh, in this edition, again, I'm here with new guests Jay and Carrie and returning guest Diana. And um, as Diana mentioned, uh, what we wanted to do uh, with this podcast today um, was to talk um, 
about uh, mental health. And before we get into it, sorry, just a, a little house cleaning. Um, please, if you enjoy our podcast, um, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. Um, please rate us, comment. We love hearing from um, our listeners and readers, uh, and um, that it really helps us out. So to get back to the podcast, um, we wanted to talk about mental health. Um, it's a it's an important issue uh, in the Asian American community. And um, as Diana mentioned, uh, one of our writers, um, George Q, he wrote a very popular article early on um, exploring sort of you know, that that issue. Uh, and Diana, you mentioned that it really affected you. Could you tell us, you know, could you tell it, could you say like why, um, why it did or a little, a few points on that? Um, basically it was the first time I had read anything about Asian American mental health that was beyond just like the shame and blame paradigm of like, oh, you know, like Asian American college age students, they feel all this pressure from their parents to mm-hmm. be a certain way and that's what causes all of these mental health problems and they can't talk about it because it's uh the asian american culture shames them into um silence uh so like that's i feel like that's kind of the mainstream narrative and pretty much the only narrative i was exposed to and that definitely wasn't my experience growing up or um my experience with you know my own mental health in general, or my parents. And um, his article was the, like the first and the only article that I've ever read, I think even until now, that went into, you know, how systemic racism or, you know, income mm-hmm. inequality or social isolation or like all these different factors can also impact mental health, like specifically within, you know, like the context or experience of like a typical Asian American person. Yeah, no, because that's, yeah, that's, that's very important because I feel that, uh, as you said, I think there are some, the, the dominant paradigm of, or the model that like, like George says, the dominant model is that it's sort of like just this cultural stigma and these parental expectations are just sort of like uniquely, um, worse in Asian American culture and, t- and, and, you know, pile on top of that sort of the immigrant struggles that cause, you know, Asian Americans to be sort of more messed up, uh, you know, than, than other regular or normal Americans. And it's such a, it, it's such an incomplete framework, um, and really a sort of a racist, uh, framework. Uh, and it's, I think it's, we're never going to be able to, uh, we're never, never going to be able to, uh, you know, correctly address it or, or get people the help they need unless we can get past that. Yeah, um, not only that, it kind of assumes that, you know, a person exists in a vacuum as though like your own family and your own culture is the only thing that determines like the state right. of your mental health. And that's not all the case because how could you avoid, you know, interacting with the culture at large? And it's an interaction. So there's no way that it should you know, that, that it is a really narrow and limiting like point of view. Definitely. Um, and you come from Carrie, you come from a more, um, sort of clinical background, right? Um, well, yes. Uh, I mean, speaking to the Asian American kind of like mental health experience, Mm -hmm. um, it's just that I've had the you know, the privilege of actually serving at a, at a community clinic that specifically works with um, Asian Americans. So it's based here in New York City. It's on the Lower East Side and it caters to mostly Asian Americans and um, actually mostly Chinese Americans and immigrants and refugees. So I've had a little bit of clinical experience working with this population. Mm. So, yeah. But I do kind of feel the need to qualify that I'm not Asian American. I've been here for like <laughs> four to five years. I'm Singaporean. So sometimes I feel a little bit like, you know, that I am pretending I'm like this imposter. Oh. But, you know, to everyone else, I'm just like, like 
our fates are tied together. I am, to for all intents and purposes, like most people see me as like an Asian in America. So right, right, and yeah. you know, I don't know if there's like a time time frame where sort of you transition from like a new immigrant who's just like Asian and living in America to Asian American, but you know, I think what the the work you've done and sort of being in that being amongst Asian Americans, <laughs> um, you, you know, qualifies you. <laughs> from yeah, that, I know, right? That it's aspect, like, where does it right? begin? Like, right. <laughs> is there a line? Yeah, and it does. It, yeah, <laughs> and it's not just Asian Americans, right? I mean, I think Asians in the West. Uh, you know, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's a sort of it's similar, uh, even though there might be some some specific differences. Because mm-hmm. um, because Jay, you're you're Canadian, right? You're, yes. as you said you're Indo. Canadian, Indo-Canadian. I'm actually so to make things even a little bit more confusing. It's a, uh, it's a uh, Indo-Canadian from South India, but South Indian diaspora from Southeast Asia, but not the mm. historical Southeast Asian Singaporean Malaysians. Just kind of stop over there. Mm. That just means we eat a lot of rice <laughs> and a lot of different types <laughs> <Yeah>. of curry. <laughs> <laughs> just because we brought up. You know, Singapore and Malaysia. I was just thinking about this. And when I first got an idea about how Asian mental health can be different, and this is coming from more mm-hmm. of a historical view of mental health. And so for some old doctors and old psychiatrists, they may not actually really understand the nuances of Asian Americans. Not, not surprising if they're white and if they're old. And that's true probably for Definitely, all people yeah. of color. But some of the things that they learn about are things on the DSM. They have this thing called Coro. I, I don't even know how to pronounce it. And so within the DSM, and I'm sure Carrie can also explain a little bit more. It's basically, so for those who don't know, the DSM is kind of the, the handbook for American psychiatrists. And it's mostly used in Europe, Canada, US, and, but has a, has a global influence on the study of mental health. And so there would always right, be right. a small little section that would be it'll be called cultural bound syndromes and so one of them is the wendigo psychosis for canadians we know that because it's an algonquin story and it's the idea of you become like the abominable snowman and then you kind of go crazy and you start eating meat but it's clearly racist because it probably has never existed (laughs) and so that was considered like one cultural bound syndrome many many years ago I don't even, and then the other one that for, that's Asian related is called Koro. And it's this idea, and it's very specific to the Chinese diaspora of Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia, nowhere else. And it's the, okay. this, this idea that, and the idea is that these, these men would come in to an office and they'd be like really worried about their testes retracting into their body. But after doing physical signs, they saw there's nothing wrong with you. Everything is fine. And okay. it was really like a kind of psychosis. And then this was kind of listed as this cultural bound psychosis or cultural. It's called a cultural bound syndrome. And all of these white doctors <laughs> in the world probably only learned about this very specific Asian thing that's not infectious disease from like the 1960s mm. onwards and that's their like first oh mental health is different for asian people which is really crazy if you think about it right <laughs> I, so i i guess it's for me it's fascinating to think like why why did this happen like what was the motivation behind adding this to the dsm um guidelines and making it so culturally specific and because it, it doesn't seem like it makes any sense like, um, though, I mean, I guess you could say that about a lot of things that happen to women and sort of like the idea of, of hysteria mm-hmm. and sort of the, the history of like women's mental health. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to get too theoretical and I'm sure there's some listeners out there who like look at mental health as like a, through like an anthropological lens and you can really mm. see like mental health. And if you go into more sort of postmodern with Michel Foucault, mental health is kind of like the arm of the state and it's an ideology and it's very much connected to white dominance. And this isn't to say that those that are suffering with mental health, that their suffering is 
just related to white dominance and there's no biological reasons and I'm not saying it's not valid, but I am saying that the system that we have to deal with this type of suffering is related to white dominance and perhaps in itself it can cause some kind of suffering of some sort as well, particularly for Asian Americans and that's why these narratives keep on popping up. Yeah, I mean like in the domain of science and medicine in general, it has it has been the domain of men and specifically like white men, and that's still true to this day. Like even modern day, mm. like DSM. So, like even the people who come into a clinic and who seek like you know help, we're looking at them. The diagnostic lens we're looking at them is is created by men, and like you know even like how we how people express emotion like what's the american standard of kind of expressiveness of emotional intelligence all of that is like very racially bound so if someone comes in and we say that you know in clinical terms like they have a flat affect you know and i always think like what is flat affect to a white person versus you know, an Asian person, when we are the ones who are accused of looking, you know, of like having like not a lot of emotional expression and things like that. So it's already like really tricky. It's a gray area. Mm -hmm. So it's like things like that. Like I try to, you know, and they say now you have to be culturally sensitive. You have to, you know, look at someone and be aware of these things. But I wonder outside of like maybe like, a culturally specific clinic like mine like do people really do that like are they stepping out of their own lens and like you know looking at you like that so I think it's like one of the well I feel like I'm advertising for this clinic now but like that's one of the things (laughs) that we do like we do kind of like look at people and and kind of like gauge like you know um for example like in autism like part of it is about um you know, not being able to read emotion, not being able to express emotion in a way a quote-unquote like a normal person would. So it's like, do we look at them through like an Asian lens of emotional expression when, for example, this child has been told that, you know, crying is bad or Mm -hmm. whatever it is, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So like there's a lot more digging to be done like versus like just using that diagnostic criteria like blindly, which I feel like is unethical. So, so Carrie, yeah, do definitely. you find that like clinical language that has this kind of like air of sophisticated and objective and you got the patient client wall in between you and it's really great language, great clinical language. And in, in, in your opinion, is, is it kind of like, it's really not, it's actually culturally influenced? Like what yeah, is a tangential thought? Yeah. Like, you know, like even, yeah, tangential, well, some of that is like really clear, like, but there's a lot of gray area. And I think even that language, that like clinical, like scientific language is, I feel like, a, like the legacy of a certain mm. way of thinking, a certain like intellectual kind of bias. Like there's this like looking at a person through a very intellectual kind mm-hmm. of like cold and analytical kind of lens. Yeah. And I think like it's up to clinicians, up, up to each like person to kind of take that and, and apply it. But I just wonder, like, even in, in my own training, like sometimes I wonder, like, you know, could they go further? Could they like, you know, tell us to use our own judgment more? Because I know mm-hmm. that there are some people who might follow the DSM to the, like, to the last detail. Like they might be <laughs> super, right. you know, like, like very like you know well, about following it versus yeah, someone so that, who might be yeah. more loose with it yeah well that's an interesting point because um like i would like to discuss a little bit more about what we feel are the sort of what are the burdens that are uh, affecting or that asian americans or asians in the west carry um you know are you know, what 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 do you guys think are our worries like what are we what are we anxious about um, and what are the causes of sort of the mental health or the need for mental health treatment? Um, and, you know, are, are they sort of are some of them cultural um, in terms of, you know, people who might be one and a half or second generation who have parents that were, were um, raised and, and um, lived a lot of their lives in sort of their, the home countries uh, and of, you know, and that sort of immigrant experience of the, immig- of the second gen children? Or are, and is there also a mix of sort of 
you know, the, the stresses that uh, minorities have in, in Western cultures. Um, what do you guys think about that? Uh, if I can take a quick stab at it. Yeah, yeah sure. For, for, I just, for some people, mental health is so personal. So when I think when we're speaking about the criticisms about pushing an, a stigma Asian narrative, we're not saying it's untrue. And I, cause for some people, that is their lived experience where they sought mental health very late and it's uh, impacted them or they have a really poor relationship with their parents and it is stigma related. And so that is very valid. And I think as a community, we just have to mm-hmm. own up to it that it exists. It's a thing for sure. But one thing that's important is that it needs to be proportionate and it needs to be nuanced and it needs mm-hmm. to be holistic. And that is something that I've been missing in a lot of articles in general. I see it sometimes right. in critical literature and right. it's I think really the important. Problem is it's, um, it's a truth, you know, that does happen, but it's not the only truth. And I think right. that having the narr- the one narrative that we get in the mainstream yeah that be the only truth is inherently racist because it is coincidentally and conveniently the one that pushes all of the stigma and all of the problems onto asian culture onto the otherness right mm-hmm. on the otherness factor it, yeah exactly. and onto onto first generation parents who conveniently mm-hmm. may not have the language or the the knowledge, the social capital to speak up uh, for themselves and to fight back against exactly. this narrative. One thing I don't really hate about the narrative too, it makes Asians as like non-rational actors of their health, if that makes sense. And so some of the literature shows that if you do not, and it's termed as health-seeking behaviors, so if you don't exhibit these so-called objective health-seeking behaviors, you're going to have mm. lower mental health outcomes. And it's clearly a correlation, not a causation. And so then it right. just, in academic language, you're already saying these are the traits and behaviors we want Asians to have, and they should have these. Otherwise, they are just going to suffer. And then it kind of flips the narrative from a healthcare system that's poorly designed and poorly right. accesses or has poor access. And then it flips it on. You know what? It's not our fault. It's specifically Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese communities that they just aren't, you know, seeking these behaviors. It's kind of their own fault. It's their culture. That's exactly what I was going to point out is that when you sort of, when you put those two ideas together, that, um, you know, you, you, you say, as you said, it's just a, correlation not a causational sort of uh relationship where you're just saying if you don't if you don't seek out help then you have lower mental health outcomes which sort of you know on its face makes sense but you don't then sort of make it you know as as like academics that might make sense you don't go further but if you write about that in the popular sphere right in pop psychology or just in like popular media you know, people who are not clinicians are going to, you know, or a lot of people sort of go the next step and say, well, then it's your fault because you didn't try to get help. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a very damaging, yeah, I think that's a, you know, that's a very, um, that's a very damaging sort of uh, framework because then, you know, people aren't going to want to then have any, people don't have sympathy for you, right? They're like, well, you could try, but you don't. So, you know, it's sort of your fault and then nothing changes. And you add, and you layer on sort of, I think the Asian cultural stereotypes that exist, um, you know, just, it makes it even worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think Diana, you, you sort of brought a group that always is sort of forgotten is like sort of the older Asian American, um, people, right? Like they're mm-hmm. sort of, their mental health issues are always forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a lot of times it's sort of like the second, third, Fourth, you know, the, the very Americanized or very Westernized, um, you know, uh, children or grandchildren that a lot of them for various reasons want to sort of distance themselves from 
sort of the bad aspects of Asian culture. And what happens is, you know, the sort of the forgotten victims of that are sort of the, the, the elderly who sort of, as you mentioned, just don't have either the language skills or the cultural skills um, to, to sort of seek out any help. Um, and that's really tragic. Um, you know, it, it makes me feel really angry and, and also really sad. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's kind of exacerbated by the fact that, I mean, it's just reflective of like an American attitude towards like old age and aging in general. That's very true too. Yeah, and it's it, not just... I mean, <laughs> the way that it's, the way the Western attitude, attitudes towards aging and old people is, is so different from, I mean, like even the values that I was raised with, I'm not sure about like you guys or, and I don't want to generalize, but... It was almost shocking to me, like, you know, that people who are so old, they live on their own and all, like, all these things. So I feel Mm -hmm. like there's so much isolation in these communities. And, you know, it's like, first you're an old person, so you're basically invisible to society anyway. And then if you have mental health issues and then all these different levels of stigma, you're just basically, like, buried under under these. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the key words you definitely mentioned was isolation. For a lot of geriatric, particularly the Chinese community, Hong Kong community, the historical one since like the 1950s and 60s in Toronto, and I think this includes New York, they're a community that's often isolated. And I mean, it's not like it isn't visible either. Like you can see it on the street sometimes. And so there's this weird narrative for Americans and Canadians, like just generic Mm -hmm. American Canadians, that Asians take care of their children. And it's very true. Asians do take care of their children, maybe more so than white Americans, but it's not as foolproof as people think, (laughs) because what happens for Asian Canadians and Americans, they're still, they still work in the same political economy (laughs) as all of us do. Mm -hmm. And it's where we have Mm -hmm. two incomes (laughs) just to support one kid (laughs) or two kids if you're in a high income city. And then on top of that, you have your parents. And then on top of that, you're worrying about your bills. And this is sort of doable for someone in a, you know, more in the upper 15% of income, but the 80% of people, this is a really difficult thing to do. And it really, it's what, and Asian grandmas and grandpas, they also don't want to really burden their kids. That's very anecdotal for myself. That's not a, not a, not something I can cite. They don't, they don't want to do that either it's not they don't always expect their kids it's there's there's a lot of heterogeneity mm-hmm. in there but they do feel isolated <laughs> and that social isolation is not because of their choice and it's not because of stigma it's because there are no services for them and if you look in communities in flushings in new york or in toronto there's a lot of really great work done by the chinese communities itself and through the mm-hmm. publicly funded healthcare, there's a day programs, there are community home care outreaches, there's culturally sensitive programs that are for the community, but they include food that people will actually eat. Like there's a lot of things that can be done where for like this geriatric Asian population in many parts of the US and Canada, they're kind of forgotten. But they use the same system <laughs> that everyone else uses, except those programs are never oriented towards them, furthering their isolation. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great point. Right. And Jay, like you mentioned something about like them not burdening, you know, their kids. And I've seen this too, like, you know, so to push back against the narrative of kids abandoning their parents or whatever it is. Like I do see a lot of like older people who actually insist on their own independence. So like, yeah, I, yeah, I feel yeah. like that's part of the whole thing about, you know, being here and being an immigrant. It's like all these people that I've seen who are like, you know, older and maybe struggling with isolation, they still insist on their own independence and like, you know, insisting that they want it to be done this way. Can, can, I, I, just, can I just interrupt with like yeah. a silly story? Is that mm-hmm. I went to a woman's house once and she was an older, um, originally from Hong Kong, came to Canada in like 1980s. 1970s and she was like 82 and she was like a lead person in an advocacy organization for Chinese Canadians and so she hurt herself and so she needed some real help 
in her in her little room but she actually and like her job and like livelihood was helping other chinese canadians but she refused mm. all help and just did it all herself and i was there <laughs> telling her i was like i am a manager here to make sure that you're okay you paid for your taxes you should get some kind of services and she's someone who spoke very good english she could advocate for herself but she refused every single one and just wanted to hop along into the shower <laughs> so like this narrative that <laughs> asians older Asians just always want their children to take care of them is, I just think, patently untrue because a lot of them really value. I mean, mm -hmm. I think just older people in general really value their independence. I'm almost... Oh, like, absolutely. Caref I'm absolutely. usually That's careful, my, but I yeah. want to say it's almost a universal. <laughs> I mean, almost every person in my life who's, you know, everyone in my family, they're fiercely independent. I mean, of course, they want us around and they, they like being around us, but... They like their independence. Like my mom, um, my mom, uh, my background. I think the listeners of the podcast are familiar with it. So, my my mom is not Asian American. She is <laughs> very white Christian and uh, Christian American. And uh, she just stopped driving, and she's had cancer twice. And you know, she <laughs> in her seventies, but it was a big decision for her. Um. So yeah, that the idea that like Asian grandparents or asian families are uniquely burdensome or something is is patently ridiculous yeah i think it's like uh assuming that because they're asian they're going to be different fundamentally different as people and that's just right, not right. true like mm -hmm. people in general are more similar than they are different but we're always right. focusing on For how sure. we're different yeah, and like yeah. Diana, you brought up that whole stereotype thing about that whole like limiting kind of narrative on mental health for Asian Americans. So I feel like maybe right now we should just come up with like the alternative narrative. Yeah, <laughs> Because absolutely. it's like, you know, for me, I was thinking about it, like what is the narrative? And I just feel like it's basically regular people going through all the typical developmental milestones with the added challenge of, you know, being a minority in a country. like. I feel like that whole minority piece is still important. And I feel like that's why it keeps popping up in like, oh, Asian culture is this, Asian culture is that. And I feel like people flag it as the main reason because it seems to be the most obvious thing. Mm. And then it's the right. most obvious thing that someone can point to and be like, look, it is this. And well, I, I, I think it's most obvious to a white person because that's the biggest mm. difference yes. between yes. them yes. and us. Sometimes I do, like, mental gymnastics to get there, too, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, I wonder to what extent, like, you know, Asian Americans have taken on that narrative. Oh, you know, a lot. Like, I, think I think a lot, lot. you know? Mm. And, I yeah, because I think, you know, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I think in the sort of lower 48 of the states of the United States, a large percentage of Asian America is still sort of um, second or third generation, right? Sort of still kind of connected to people who grew up um, in the homeland, so to speak. And because of that, uh, I think there is a, a, a greater tendency to focus and internalize um, uh, and, and uh, those sort of cultural aspects and to sort of blame those aspects um, more than or to weight them more than they probably should mm. uh, I mean I could be wrong but that's sort of just how I, how my experience and um, you know it's sort of understandable in a way but also uh, hopefully we can as you as you mentioned Carrie sort of come to the realization that it's probably not <laughs> the 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 root of most of what ails you know Asian Americans uh, you know just as people Right. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if you guys have heard of, um, the author and I think he's also a, um, journalist, Johan Hari. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of that name? Yes. Um, he's, I, I think he's fascinating cause, and, and sort of controversial because his take on mental health, um, sort of fits into what we're talking about because for him, I think he focuses on depression mainly, 
but um, and I'm going to probably butcher his ideas, but uh, his sort of um, one of his big points is that being depressed can be a rational response to sort of our circumstances in life. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not and, and being depressed isn't always just like a sickness of the mind that needs to be managed or needs needs drugs mm-hmm. to sort of um, take care of. Right. Um, I mean, it was and, discovered as learned helplessness in dogs that were shocked at random points and they couldn't control, you know, like if they were being shocked or not. Right. Um, Or, you know, someone who finds themselves, you know, not able to communicate and get the help they need. And, you know, they're, they're sort of alone and they don't know what to do. Um, You know, or, you know, even just something where it's like you're getting older and you're not as capable as you once were, you know, like that's, completely rational to sort of start to feel depressed about that and um, or you know the psychoanalytic point of view of depression is anger turned inwards it's just an emotion that you're not able to express or you're not allowed to express and then you turn mm-hmm. it inwards at yourself and i can think of many reasons to be angry <laughs> and not be able to express it and it's also about power dynamics you know because like who do we show our anger to like even just think about it on a personal level like who do you show your anger to and in what areas of your life do you feel like it's sanctioned you know i mean it's like do you get mad at your boss do you yell at him no you just get mad and you Mm -hmm. complain you know but imagine it happening on a micro level every day you know, whether it's a microaggression, whether it's about, you know, hearing something, like everything, it just builds up. So it's never just one cause. It could be like so many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think specifically for Asians in diaspora or Asian Americans, like if you are of, you know, like the first 1.5 second generation, like your family might have... um you know, like trauma from like war (laughs) or uh, political upheaval. And that that gets played out in a lot of situations. Um, And it can also affect, you know, like second, third generation people in various ways. For sure. And I strongly believe in this, that pain is passed down in families until someone feels it. Someone Mm -hmm. is able and willing to feel it. And when does one, when is one able to feel it? Usually when you are, you you no longer have to live in survival mode. So it's like, yes, that's so true. Yeah. You know, so it's like, how long have your parents or your ancestors have been like struggling and fighting? And like, how is your quality of life now? So maybe like, you are the one with the cushy job and all of a sudden you're depressed. So it seems so like incongruent, but actually it totally makes sense because you're no longer mm-hmm. in survival mode and your body is allowing you to feel all these emotions, all these things that you're feeling that maybe your parents couldn't, your grandparents couldn't, they couldn't afford to, but now it's on you, Yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. I just had chills with that point because that's just such a, that really hits home, you right. know, I think, and, and for the Asian American community, I think there's so much of that. Um, you know, it, it, various groups, all the groups in the Asian diaspora globally that have come from, you know, Asia to the West. Yes. Uh, that That is such a huge point. And, um, you know, not, not as like a, a you know, a story I, I, I heard because uh, I was listening to the a- ABG podcast. I don't know if you guys listen to that, um, but shouts to our... Uh, podcast sisters and brothers out there but um one of the the women on the abg podcast uh was in the last uh, episode was about their moms and she one of i can't remember which which woman um was saying that uh her mom focused so hard uh to learn english so that she could help her 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 daughters and her kids and then it came to a point where it was like in third grade where um she couldn't like her, the 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 girl the daughter had caught up to her mom's like sort of english proficiency and like her mom couldn't learn it fast enough to keep up with her kid and then you know her 
she got very upset. The kid got upset that her mom, like, you know, what's wrong? Why can't you help me? All my other, you know, friends, that their parents could help her. And I think, you know, that's sort of like a generational hurt. You know, that that's something that, mm-hmm. um, that sort of, I don't know if exactly fits what, we're, that, what you were mentioning, Carrie, but it, it really, I, I was reminded of it when you talked about that sort of generational sort of trauma or, or uh, um, right. struggle that can go between generations. And, like, and it really struck can, me. I'm sorry, cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying like trauma can like, you know, it can span a whole spectrum. And again, like mentioning DSM, it's like really narrowly defined. Like, but for me, I feel like tra- like a traumatic experience can be like anything that, you know, that it doesn't have to be like this, like a terrorist event or something. It could be something that hurts you so mm-hmm. deeply that it leaves a scar on you. You know, and something like that to me, like it can be scarring. It can be so hurtful because of all the baggage behind it, because of all the history and all the things that you carry along with you. And I think that I really see that so often because like, and these are such huge things that people just try to brush off. Like I've had like patients who just talk about their moms who had to be so stoic, like stoically working, stoically giving birth Mm. and stoically like being a single parent or you know, like all these things that they just mentioned like offhand as though it was just nothing. Like to me, I, I have to be the one who says, no, like this is a huge thing. But the culture in that particular family might just be like, no, like this is the way we have to do things to survive. Or this is the way that things have always been done. So they don't think about it in terms of in relation to other people. Like, is this a big deal? They just think about it in terms of their own family culture. Like, no, this is how it's always been. But if you come from a background where there has been war, poverty, you know, like things like that, these are huge things. You don't just get over it, even in just one no. generation. It gets passed down. And it's epigenetics, like trauma is encoded in yourself, in yourself, yeah. in your body, you know. Yeah. In yeah, absolutely. It's encode- It becomes encoded in the way that DNA folds even. Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we could go on and on about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it, it's it's so funny because so many of the, the groups, like the Vietnamese Americans, like it's not like their sort of, you know, their, their trauma, right? It's not like the Vietnam War and sort of also um, everything that came before that and after that is like, was like hundreds or thousands of years ago. Like right. it happened like 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Like it's... <laughs> it's yeah. super recently like, you know people's parents lived through it right? yeah, yeah my parents um, um were were kids during the cultural revolution they were teenagers yeah yeah um so it's so yeah, can it's, i just talk about the flip side which is kind of just kind of a area yeah. of interest for the social determinants of health is that <laughs> for the first year for the first generation immigrants and so it mm. usually started with like Mexican Americans, but also includes Asians, is that they actually have a protective effect for a lot of health outcomes. And I believe for mental health and depression is one. And so obviously it's not including those who had like very significant trauma related to war. But mm. that being said, it's like, so sometimes their children have worse health outcomes than the parents even though they right. moved into a developed country with robust healthcare services and and things like that. But then just being... And so what the evidence shows is that it's being a racialized individual. And I think mm. it, it comes from a movie in, during the 80s and 90s. I think it's called The Silent Killer that they wrote about it. Or rather, they did a movie mm. about it. And that shows like, so the children may have worse outcomes than the parents. And so... <laughs> Even then, for like clinicians, they sometimes still get it wrong because they think <laughs> like, "Oh, the kids are going to be fine. The parents are the ones that have all the problems." And it's like, no. Sometimes your racist society and structures <laughs> have caused the kids to have like right. more anxiety and more depressive symptoms because they have to deal with bullying and whatever things that cause them to be isolated. And why do you, why do you think that is, Jay? Because I, I can think that maybe it's because. Like the immigrant parents don't necessarily have um, the highest expectations for themselves, so you know, they know that they're going to be coming in, that they're 
poorer that you know they their success ceiling is lower yeah right? and they're the, hoping that and they're hoping that their children's will be higher because they were born and raised in the culture yeah that, that's and that's definitely part of it right and then the kids or you know they sort of feel that it should be and then they realize wait a minute we're living in a racist racist racial racialized system that's rigged against me and i can't actually my ceiling is a lot lower than i was led to believe yeah so that's sort of like how i think about it is it yeah that, that's that, does is that part make of sense it. to you or yeah it's it's part of a larger literature in income inequality and it's the idea is like, why are people that are richer or poorer, which why are they more sick? And so the obvious reason is material reasons, right? Like you're living in a poor sure. neighborhood. But what they've noticed is that that's not quite the reason for this discrepancy and it doesn't explain it a hundred percent. And so part of it is just being a racialized individual or just being yeah. a person living in an area of great income inequality you know you're in the lower tier and that may cause more stress in your body like through um, through your adrenal system and mm. that could make you sicker as well as more prone to mental health issues so for these yeah. parents that come from a poorer country they may have been in a more equal society especially if they came during the 80s before india and china blew up for instance and then you come to America, which, of course, has skyrocketing income inequality. And so in a country like America versus even an immigrant community in, you know, in a really racist European country where they have like mm -hmm, right wing mm -hmm. people who really don't want you there. The European, you know, immigrants from like Africa, they may have better outcomes <laughs> than some Americans because they don't have that income inequality driving these really poor health outcomes. Yeah, there's also just um, racial being racialized. Period. I think that you did you mentioned yeah. that. Yeah, because I I, yes. I also read somewhere that um, like people of color who live in predominantly white areas have more are are at more risk of heart disease and anxiety and depression and stuff like that. Yeah, I can believe that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can, yeah. I, I could definitely believe that. Do, Mark, have you was, ever guys, do you ever guys go back home? Like, or like when I say back home for us diaspora folks, when you go back home and to your motherland, so to speak, and you see people like yourself, mm. do you ever just like feel at ease? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, Carrie, yeah. Carrie, you're, Carrie, you're, you're probably, you're, you know, you're the most recent immigrant. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel that way? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. Like, I've gotten so comfortable being like the only mm. Asian person like anywhere right now. I live in. Oh, sorry to put you on the spot too. I didn't mean. To. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like when I was first here, it was such a stressful experience. I was mm. I was in a really white area, and then here I was thinking I was just like everyone else, and I got like a root shock when I realized that people did not just see me as a person. Because like, I grew up as a like. And I wasn't a minority, like it was a majority race that like, we were all like in my mind. But mm. when I first <laughs> came here and interacted with white people and then I was like, you know, like maybe getting a microaggression here or there, even though like I I was not thinking about it in those those terms, I was like, Whoa, like what is this feeling? It was such a strange feeling to me. So, you know, when I finally learned to recognize it and to be like oh, they're talking to me in this way because they think they have certain assumptions about me just based on like how I look or how different I am. Mm. And then it was a really stressful, it was a really stressful thing because then I became like hyper aware of right, how I'm right. coming across. And even I'm sure like the way I, I speak now, it has changed because like in Singapore, we speak more British English. Whereas like over time, like, I'm just like, well, I don't want to explain. So even the way that I speak, maybe, and like the way that, you know, I come across, the way that I speak to different people, I know that I, I sound different. And in my mind, it's just because like, you know what? I don't want to have to explain myself to you. <laughs> I think wow. it's that constant need of feeling like you had to justify your experience. And sure. then I think yeah. it came up to a point where I was just like, like fuck that, basically. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> like, why... Yeah, good. Good. <laughs> like, why am I allowing them to kind of like 
like why am dictate I your reality yes, don't do that exactly. yeah. like, it's, it's like you're like, you're going through the minority development yeah <laughs> and yeah, you can see it super like rapidly it was like, a super rapid process because then i started grad school and then i started like you know like interacting with all kinds of people and because i go to a cuny it's so much more diverse like yeah, all my yeah. friends are like black or hispanic you know then i was like oh okay you know like i don't have to feel a certain way like it's not just me and blah blah and things like that and that really that really helped me so now when i go home i go back to singapore and in mm. singapore like there are so many minorities too like indians and malays and then i was like oh shit like have i been an awful white person the equivalent of an awful uh, white person uh, yeah um, asians are like the white people of yes. asia yes well that's that see that's fascinating in and of itself yes right yes. sort of that singaporean um the, the the demographics of singapore and sort of as you said how i think the ethnic chinese maybe are um seen as like the white, white people of singapore or whatever yeah. Um, but so, so you're saying that instead of sort of like a relief of, of being amongst your own, you had sort of a, a different realization. Yeah, like, like for you were sure. Saying. Because like Chinese, the Chinese majority were like seventy percent of the population, and that is huge. Yeah, it is. And I didn't I, know it was I, that big. I totally realized my privilege there because then, you know, I even had a conversation with my friends about it. I did not have a single non-Chinese friend until like maybe i was 18 because of the schools that i was in they were like mm. chinese schools mostly chinese people so it's like i was like oh i get it so it allowed me this like lens of understanding white people too because That's, i'm like mm. oh, okay yeah. like i i understand like both perspectives now like how yeah. you came to develop a certain mindset just based on your life trajectory as a person in a majority population. That's fascinating. So you like rapidly <laughs> cycled through minority identity development and then jumped into majority identity development and now you're just like, I'm all set. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, but Diana, have you had a lot of t chance to, to go to China? A, a few times. It's, uh, I mean, I usually only go with my parents, but... They, okay. they, I mean, now that my grandparents have passed away, they don't really have any incentive to go back anymore. And I think they're still dealing mm. with their own issues just about um, uh, surveillance. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so like being there is kind of Their own history, okay. So mm. it, yeah, it's just, it's complicated. And, and Jay, do you, do you feel that sort of um, comfort when you go back to India or? Yeah, so I mean... For South India, it's and India mm. is a very chaotic place, but you do feel yeah. at home as a diaspora when you're in a more mm. quiet area, maybe even someone's like house in the city, and you do feel like much different on just how people look at you. And when people look at you in India, just from how you dress, they know you're a foreigner. Like they immediately know. True, and, true but you still yeah. like you don't get othered in such a way that you get into different areas of continental U.S. In Canada, for sure. It's a, I just find it very interesting. And then in Singapore and Malaysia, you know, they don't, they're, cause they're slightly more westernized. They don't really treat Indo Canadians much different mm. at all, I feel. Like you feel very much at home there. And I think I would say like, I would feel like, like 10 times more comfortable in Singapore as a woman. Because like, I would say that in America, like, you know, sexual harassment on the street is a lot more aggressive than in Singapore really? or in Asian countries in general. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like wow. super safe in Singapore. I can go out at 3 a.m. I like, there's nothing I need to worry about. And there's actually trust in the police there. Hmm. Whereas yes. here, <laughs> I'm like a lot more wary. Yeah. As uh, everyone is. Right. <laughs> but, um, Okay, cool. Um, and, um, you know, I, we've had a great discussion so far. Thanks, everybody. Um, and I know that, um, we, uh, we at Plan A, uh, tend to talk about very heavy topics, which, um, uh, this was another heavy episode. But, um, I do think that because we've talked about sort of, 
um, cultural competency, you know, we talked about in the beginning, um, and also sort of what the stereotypical paradigm of it is uh, of Asian American culture and how that relates to mental health and sort of what we think it should be. Um, I I wanted to also just discuss um, sort of some guidelines or thoughts that any of you had about if, you know, an Asian American, you know, or a listener or, or anyone wants to seek out treatment. Um, what are some guidelines um, for that general search? And also, what should we be looking for in a therapist um, that, uh, you know, what's important for that? Um, so does someone want to weigh in on that? Just just jump in. I think as someone who's training to be a therapist right now, basically, it's just like, you know, just be aware a therapist is a person and they come with like their own lens on things. So I guess like as a client, it will be useful to ask a few questions that you could ask something like, you know, what is your theoretical orientation, which will tell you what is their view of human, of hum- humanity. Mm-hmm. Like how and do what they sort of answer? And what sort of answers would someone give? Someone would tell you like, oh, maybe they're, they're like a million theories, basically. So someone might be psychodynamic, which means that they might look more into your childhood they would think like your childhood okay. have more like has more of a bearing on who you are today or they might be cbt based which is cognitive behavioral so that's about like changing your thought patterns and like you know learning how to identify thoughts that are not helpful for you so some are more technical some like to delve more into your history but most people kind of like take an integrative approach and I guess like for Asian Americans specifically, you want someone who has some understanding of how culture, of uh, power dynamics, of how politics play into how a person is shaped. So you could ask them, you know, maybe their views on, <laughs> I don't know, like... Maybe something about how do you see, um, what's your theory on how a person comes to be or how is personality formed? And then they can verbalize. Okay. You know, even if it, it's not specific, at least you get a little bit of the, that flavor, you know, but I would say that it's a 50 50 chance of getting a good therapist and a bad therapist. So mm-hmm. like everything else, just shop around and you don't have to settle or compromise or feel bad if you're not clicking with this person because they're just another person. It's okay to shop around. It's okay to say, hey, like, let me go find someone else. Like, don't feel I think that's a really, I think that's a really important point is that I think a lot of people, and I know for me personally, I would probably feel guilty and, and stick with the therapist for too long. Mm. But I think it's a really important point that you bring up that, you know, it. this is an important choice. Yes. And don't feel guilty or feel like you need to stick with someone that you don't work with of course you know don't like make a decision in like five minutes but trust your gut um on that Mm -hmm. um jay or diana did you guys have anything i'm just going to come a little bit from the public health system just because it's a little bit different i would just let people know especially for asian canadians that your health and the way this system is designed you're in charge of it and so you have to take ownership of it. But that doesn't mean it gives other people to write, to box you in, to label you. And you sh- will always have to advocate for yourself. For those that have friends or family that have mental health issues or any kind of health issues, ultimately the squeaky wheel gets things done. Huh? Mm-hmm. And yeah. You'll always, and it's it's stressful, it's not easy, especially for the sandwich generation, for those that have kids and are taking care of their parents, you, you are going to be the advocate, and you'll always have to advocate with, and if Asian being Asian or some Asian values is something that isn't being addressed, you will always have to advocate for it. It's unfortunately, it's not that, I'm not saying it should be that way, it's just the way it is, and so you should just always be mm-hmm. aware of it. So if you're someone who wants to make sure that your parents are getting mental health services, geriatric services, or psychogeriatric services that meet their cultural needs, you're going to have to be there to make sure that they are met and that it's 
culturally sensitive. And that's just unfortunately the way the system works. And I'm sure in the U.S., unless you have a lot of money, it's going to be similar as well. Yeah, what I would I would say is, um, you know, there's there's some things that are culturally significant, like, you know, if somebody uh, prescribes you medication, you should consult the dosage because um, those dosages are, yeah. uh, you know, they were tested for white men. And if you're not that, you know, you'll probably want to scale that or find somebody who is who knows how to scale that. Um, in terms of like taking care of your parents or even just like kind of understanding your own, uh, feelings. Um, sometimes if you aren't acculturated to describing or feeling them, they might manifest as physical symptoms rather than moods. Um, Mm -hmm. that's a big thing. And then lastly, I would say you don't necessarily need somebody a therapist who is Asian American, um, it, you just really need somebody who is cognizant of these cultural uh, differences and also maybe like uh, racial identity models. I mean, like the mm-hmm. best yeah. therapist I've had is was actually a white woman. You know, she wasn't necessarily um, competent on that, but she actually like you know, like talk to me about these things and did her own research herself. Mm-hmm. And that was awesome. And one of the worst therapists that I've had was this Asian woman who she told me that she didn't like Jewish people. Like when I said, oh, great. yeah, great. I, I know, right? It's like, what the hell? But I mean, you just like, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, <laughs> like demographics, you know, that sort of thing. It really doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna find somebody who looks like you who will treat you the best i think i hope that therapist has a really good therapist of of their own Uh, seems like they need a new one (laughs) i hope so Um. and i think i want to speak of myself as a client too because i do go for therapy myself and i think like from the seeking treatment kind of like perspective like i think it's really important to understand that what you're doing like even seeking help is huge is is so good and you should be so compassionate to yourself in this process that's very true seeking mm-hmm. help alone it is an act of courage like i truly 100 percent believe it but on the flip side i think that this is where many service providers fail in that that front line is often so terrible but like i've had like receptionists mm. just pick up and just say sorry we're full and offer like no alternative you know, when I understand, like, when someone's depressed or when they're really anxious, like, even making that phone call is so hard. And then to yeah. be turned down just like that, it's just, like, terrible to me and it's, like, not acceptable. So, like, just be prepared, like, if you are looking for help, like, you know, if you're not able to do it, like, to get a friend to, you know, give, like, get a list of numbers and try and not give up till you get someone who can right. help you. Like Absolutely. Like, it's not a perfect system. It's not, like, this, you know, perfect, like, cure-all. But, you know, with some persistence, like, you you can get the help that you need. But as with anything else, like, it might not be on the first try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, like, finding a good therapist is, like, dating. You kind of just have to... Right. Yeah. (laughs) There should be, like, a Tinder or something for a therapist. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Around that note. <laughs> yeah, and like even, and I just want to say like even within your own family, like if you think like anyone in your mm. family is kind of like, you know, needs help or is struggling with something, like I think the most useful thing is just like starting with yourself. Like, you know, are you somewhat like... That's so true. Like even being compassionate with your own feelings. Because I feel like mm-hmm. especially today, like in this age of like Instagram and like, you know, needing to keep up like in appearance and things like that. It's, it's so hard to even want to sit with yourself and to confront certain feelings or to feel certain feelings, you know? So even just, like, starting with yourself and then, like, bringing the attitude of acceptance towards, like, both ups and downs in your life, it can help the people around you, like, so much more than you know. That's such an important point because I think, you know, even more broadly speaking, the people that you um, listen to the most in your life um, if you're lucky enough to have a family, a lot of family and friends, or your family and friends, right? You don't necessarily, um, you know, listen to just sort of strangers or acquaintances. 
Um, so if you can uh, sort of be compassionate for yourself and to show that, you know, I'm, I'm going to therapy or I'm doing something and, you know, it's helped me and I care about you and, you know, maybe it can help you as well. You know, you're the best sort of uh, example for that for others. Um, and, uh, you know, and you're helping your, yourself in the process. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was great talking to you guys. Um, you know, Jay, Carrie, Diana, uh, and, um, that's it. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks guys. All right. Um, so that's our podcast, uh, for this week. Thank you, um, everyone, uh, for listening. Um, if you listen, we're listening, um, uh, you know, mental health is a a really important uh, subject and hopefully you got something out of our discussion. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, in the beginning, you know, we're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, you know, wherever you can listen to podcasts. Uh, please go give us thumbs up, give us five stars, um, comment, you know, rate. We're on social media, um, Plan A Magazine, uh, at Plan A Magazine is our Twitter handle, uh, planamag.com is our website. Uh, and in the description, you know, we'll put all of our Twitter handles so that you can shout out us. But um, again, you know, thanks so much for um, listening and we'll um, see you next time.